Hello, and welcome to Wonderstruck. I am your host, Elizabeth Revere. I'm a clinical psychologist, a yoga teacher, and a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. I'm really curious about our experiences of wonder and awe and how they transform us. My guest this time is Radha Agrawal, a visionary creator of communities and author of the book, Belong. Radha is the co-founder and CEO of Daybreaker, a one-of-a-kind wellness movement and gathering of sunrise dancers that has held extraordinary events on five continents for almost half a million people, including Oprah, over the course of the last 10 years. While integrating music, movement, and community, all in a substance-free, sun-up setting, Radha has developed powerful, transformative ideas about moving past judgment toward a place of wonder and embracing dance as a means to radical healing. She embodies the urgency of community building and the need for intentional relationships, crucial conversations, and daily celebrations. Radha's Wonderstruck conversation really feels like an invitation to join her in a new and much-needed moment of true togetherness. I want you to know I went to Daybreaker a couple of weeks ago in Brooklyn, and it evoked all kinds of thoughts and experiences and emotions. For me, like thoughts about like joy and play and thinking about the history of ecstatic dance, it was, it was really powerful. So thank you so much. And um, I guess I wanted to start talking to you about Daybreaker and how it's been going for 10 years and maybe how your perspective on community and dance has like changed over the last 10 years or what have you learned what surprised you yeah I mean I think for me um what I learned is that dance is the most healing technology that exists on the planet it's the fastest way to get out of our heads and into our bodies you know in a world where one in four Americans have zero friends to confide in and we're some of the most loneliest we've ever been as a human species there is nothing more important that I can think of to do than to create community, especially right now. And what I found over the last 10 years is people are feeling so much more grateful for community post-COVID. I think there's a, such a sense mm-hmm. of, I think there's a sense of, wow, I didn't realize how important it was and it is to be in a communal experience for so long. You know, we've always wanted to be alone and travel by ourselves and be sort of remote, you know, kind of workers in Bali. Mm-hmm. But I think post-COVID, people are coming back to this need and this idea of togetherness and that we are sort of moving out of this space of toxic individualism, right? And back into collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. It sounds great. I think, and I agree with you. I mean, I do feel like we are in some aspect of a crisis in that regard because of potentially the pandemic and, you know, other things as well. But um, the sense of community, it's, it's, to me, it seems like it's one of the things where you don't have it, you just sort of feel like this thing that's really bothering you. And if something's missing, and then when you have it, you're like, Oh, my God, how could I have missed this? How could I have not had this? Totally. I mean, we prioritize our romantic relationships and our careers far more Mm -hmm. over than our friends and our communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, when I shifted that prioritization from romance and work to friends first, right, we think of friendships in these contexts as if I have time or if I can sort of get out of of this work mode or, or, or dating mode. But if once I sort of went and prioritized community as being my number one, that's when everything changed for me. Mm-hmm. You're also an author. You wrote the book called Belong. And, you know, in that regard with community, you know, you spoke about how when you were in your 30s, you weren't sure where you belonged. And I'm, I'm wondering about that in the context of, you know, you got out of college, you were a financial analyst. And at some point in your 30s, something inspired you like, what is going on? I've got to write this or the community is important. And I'm just curious if there was like a moment or what gave rise to that for you? You know, it's like when you turn 30, I think one of those things, you look yourself <laughs> in the mirror and you're like, okay, you sort of do an assessment of your life kind of up, up to that point. And for me, it wasn't sort of a major heartbreak or a, a big loss. It was just sort of this recognition that, wow, I've been sleepwalking. And I think many of us listening to this podcast probably have felt those same ways of like, I've been sleepwalking through my, you know, 
different periods of our lives, different chapters of our lives where we are just kind of going through the motions and stumbling into friendships, falling into these kind of relationships that don't always serve us. And um, we end up kind of being swept into uh, these circles that aren't fully aligned with our values and our interests and who we actually are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was this sort of this aha moment of like, wait a minute, I don't have to just go to where I'm invited. I can actually create the community of my dreams. I can actually design and really think about what are the values I'm looking for in a friendship? What are the qualities I'm looking for in a friendship? And when I realized that I didn't have to wait to be invited, but I could actually create it on my own Mm -hmm. and really paint and dream and design it for myself, that's when my whole life changed. And Mm. I began taking um, my life by my own hands and and really... um, I would say that that was that the the beginning of the rest of my life. That was the moment that changed everything for me. Wow! And that is that when you started writing. That's when I started. So the writing actually came well after the writing. um, First, it was exercises that I did. Like I started by doing these. Exercises that are actually in my book. I have about 25 exercises in my book. Sort of the first half of the book is all about going inward and first Mm -hmm. sort of assessing where you are Mm -hmm. right now. Like we go through seven to ten different sort of transitions in our lives, right? When we leave our home for the first time, when we go to college or if we get our first job or when we get married, when we graduate. You know, there's so many Mm -hmm. when we have children, when we retire, right? There's all these phases in our lives where we're sort of in transition and to um, to really do these exercises in those moments of transition. So for me, it was when I turned 30, I created these exercises mm. for myself, but now hundreds of thousands of people are, are doing these exercises too for their, their own transitions in their lives. So what I did for myself was um, just draw out three columns. The first thing I did mm. was just a three column list of like, mm. Column one was, what are the qualities I'm looking for in a friend? Mm -hmm. Column two, what are the qualities that I don't want in a friend? Right? So you have to sort of name what you don't want to. I don't want shoulder shruggers. I don't want negative (laughs) Nellies. I don't want grandfathered in friendships that I just kind of continue dragging along, even if they make me feel badly. Right. More often than I feel, you know, kind of uplifted. (laughs) And then column three is, is sort of what are the qualities that I need to embody in order to attract the friends that I want. So how can I be less of a workaholic? How can I be less of a cancel culture chick? How can I be, mm-hmm. le- how can I be less judgmental right. or whatever it is, right? So yes. I need to first look at myself as well to see how am I showing up and mm-hmm. why am I not attracting the friends that I really want? Oh, wait, because I'm actually putting out energy that is attracting this type of energy. So I need to start shifting how I show up too. Yeah. So those that first exercise was the beginning of this sort of journey and um you know anyone listening now I bet you have you've never done that for your friendships I bet you've probably done that for your professional careers right like what are the exact things I'm looking for in my professional lives you know what are the exact Mm -hmm. things I'm looking for in my romantic relation I want Mm -hmm. him to be tall and this and that and have you know be doing these things and whatever it is and um and yet we don't do that for our friendships, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so. it's really true. It reminds me of um, when I was reading your book about uh, that you do talk about the soul sisters versus the mean girls. Yes. <laughs> like, that's brilliant. Yes. The mean girls are like judgy, compare and despair. And then the perfectionism. The perfectionism. Yes. Yeah. And the soul sisters are like supportive. Yes. Like, yes. Gratitude. Say yes. Inspiration. Yeah. Inspiration. Curiosity. Yeah. The, um, the opposite of judgment is curiosity. Instead yes. of judging something, ask yourself first, why are you judging it? And get curious. Maybe you care about the thing more than you think. Mm-hmm. Um, or the curiosity of how can I move past that judgment to a place of wonder, right? Yes. We are here at Wonderstruck, right? Yes. And then the opposite of perfectionism is gratitude, right? So instead of being like nitpicking what's, you know, what could be better to be grateful for um, what's actually working or yeah. what, what you have that's going well in your life, right? Yeah, what do I actually have yeah. that I'm not noticing because I'm complaining about something else? I mean, look, I'm guilty of that, sure, sure as well right. at times, right? Right? And that's, I mean, part of the reason with this importance that we what we're ascribing it with Wonderstruck is that wonder is expansive, right? Yes. 
Exactly. The opposite of competition is inspiration. Yeah. Right. Instead of like competition is so sort of creates again. Yeah. Like you said, like such a myopic view of the world, like you're competing with someone. Mm -hmm. It's very adversarial. Whereas Mm -hmm. being inspired by someone instead. Right. All of a sudden it opens your vantage point, opens all of your sort of um, space to be able to uh, begin seeing, wow, I. I don't want to compete with this person. I want to be inspired by their lives. I love their mm-hmm. what they're doing in this world, what they're bringing in this world. Instead mm-hmm. of judging them or, you know, pretending I'm better than them because I, you know, sort of deep down feel insecure, let me be inspired by them and and maybe learn from them. Yes, right. So absolutely. Yeah, it takes you more into that place of authenticity. Yeah. As, and then it becomes a real relationship. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And once we're able to get underneath the judgment or underneath the one-upsmanship or underneath the I don't want to go here because I'm better than them. Like how often have you been to a party where you don't feel like you connect with someone and you go to the concession, you look around, drink with a drink in your hand, and you're just judging everyone there because you don't feel like you belong and you're too what's afraid wrong to with go these people? right what's wrong? right so you're too afraid to go speak to them so instead you make yourself be you know better than everybody else right. right so all of these kind of things that we do to make ourselves feel better it's just our sense of I don't belong it's that sense of loneliness that's taking us to these places yeah it's our sense of I don't belong and like you were saying in the research that's coming out one in four Americans doesn't have a person to confide and, and how we really need community. Yeah. And it brings me back to Daybreaker and how, I mean, I, you know, just telling you when, when we walked in, I didn't know exactly, I mean, I saw pictures, I've read about it. I didn't know exactly what to expect, but it's like, you know, the, there's this incredible vibration. And then there's like, there's people in, you know, yourself included like in costume and dancing. It's like incredible. You just walk in and you're like, wow. And then you just can't, you just start, you can't stop moving because <laughs> you hear the, the vibration and the rhythm. And, you know, my, my husband was like, I don't know what to wear. And I was like, you can wear shorts. You can wear anything. And so he did actually put on a button-down shirt and jeans. And then everybody's in sequins. <laughs> you know, the first time, it's like, wear whatever you want. And then the second time, maybe you'll be swept up into the thematics. Every single event has a theme. Mm-hmm. So the one that you came to actually was monochromatic. Maybe you missed that. <laughs> I, I know. Miss- I, I think we need to be more explicit about our, our mood, our mood boarding. <laughs> yeah. So, but the first time, you know, you, you can come as you are, just receive the experience. And the next time, you'll come and participate in the experience. And I talk about, you know, to really feel a sense of belonging. Um, You know, you have to move from being an explorer to being a participant, Mm -hmm. right? And so often we're just exploring around the world and we feel in some ways sort of not connected because we're just exploring. And that's phase one. And that's actually totally great as a first timer. Mm -hmm. But as you feel connected, as you sort of felt like, oh, I I could, I want to do more of this. And the next time you'll want to participate more. Mm -hmm. So when you go from explorer to participant, when you begin dressing up, and putting the glitter and, and buying the sequins or whatever it is. Um, now you're actively participating in showing up and, and give inviting sort of that joy for other people to experience you. Mm-hmm. Um, then you feel even more connected to the experience. You even feel more connected to the community. So the more we participate, the more we belong, right? So I, I mean, I love dancing. I mean, you put on music and I'm going to start tapping my foot or something. <laughs> yeah. I can't like go to a show like a musical, I'm like, oh my God, I'm moving. So there's two things there. One is that, you know, in like this history of ecstatic dance, like you have like shamanistic rituals of people dancing. There's, you know, all kinds of stories. Like there's, there's a spider dance in Italy where, you know, you're dancing out and healing from your emotions. Like there's like the ancient history of this kind of process and that we used to dance more. And I guess I'm just wondering about it for you within like kind of looking at it from like more of this spiritual kind of ancient shamanistic aspect have you had like a moment in your own experience of dance where like something opened up that felt like real or surreal or unreal or like you know a real kind of like deeply like awe infused kind of like uncanny experience oh my gosh dance is the gateway to awe dance Mm. is truly the gateway to awe I I can't tell you um, how many experiences with the spiritual realm sober that I've had, just allowing mm. my hips to open, allowing your hips actually hold so much of your tension and your stress and your anxiety and, or just, you know, your traumas. Yes, so as soon as you release yes. them, there's this sort of like opening that happens in your body and all of a sudden you're getting downloads left and right. And it sounds very woo woo to say that, but, um, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm an Asian woman who like woo isn't always my thing, but 
these moments of ecstatic, you know, sort of dance, um, which, you know, daybreakers in the morning that you get when you're dancing under the sun, you know, it's so accessed under the sun, right? The vitamin D, the sort of serotonin dump that you get from being under the light. It's unlike any form of spiritual um, experience I've had, including doing psychedelics or including doing mushrooms or whatever it is, because it's, it's, I'm dosing myself on my own body, my own movement, on my own neurochemistry, right? Mm-hmm. Through moving my body, vigorously moving my body to dance, to the beat, in reflection with other people, the, the sort of you get fully in flow state with, a, with an amoeba of people around you, right? Mm-hmm. So that flow state that you feel, allowing your body to move in unison with the vibration and the energy of the room, it sweeps you out of your own head into this sort of spiritual realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's it's unlike any other other experience I've ever felt. Wow! Even and you're saying more so than something like psilocybin. Yes, I yes. love hearing that. That's because I, I believe that. Yes, I, because you're breathing and breath work takes you there, right? Yes. When you're breathing heavily because you're moving, you have endorphins firing. You have your dopamine from the music. You're oxytocin because you're touching other people. If you're like rubbing shoulders or you're like mm-hmm. bumping into people. The serotonin mm-hmm. you get from being in, under the sunlight and the endorphins from moving your body. Like you're getting your entire full dose, your dopamine, mm-hmm. oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. Can you believe it spells out the word dose? I, know. I love it. it. When hilarious. I discovered this, I was like, oh my God, I can't even believe it. We can dose ourselves on our own supply, our own internal experience, That's of, right. or our own neurochemistry. That's right. Dopamine. Oxytocin, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. endorphins. Yeah. Yes. And if we can learn how to do that and really practice, because it takes time, right? Like you can't just expect to go to a daybreaker and it happens the first time. Like you mm-hmm. have to really allow yourself to practice. Joy is not a given. It takes practice. Yes. Happiness and awe is not a given. It takes practice and accessing it comes faster and faster and faster the more you practice Mm -hmm. but there is a ramp up if you're coming from a state of difficulty or trauma give yourself time to don't just give up try trial one. Oh, I need i need something yes. to i need substances like there's a deep codependence between having fun mm-hmm. and dancing uh, having fun dancing and drugs and alcohol yes, yes right that we need to break that codependence first first access a dancer in you that's sober mm-hmm. and from that sober, sober space keep practicing unlocking each neurochemical mm-hmm. and then it just happens you can access it faster and faster and all of a sudden you're like whoa you just whoosh you get that whoosh yes faster and faster that flow state right is that so is that why it is sober so that it opens the door in that way yeah i think we have to retrain ourselves because mm-hmm. we have again been so societally moved to i can't access that state unless i'm on some type of psychedelic or some type of, you know, drug or alcohol mm-hmm. where um, where you can absolutely, the what psychedelics or drugs and alcohol do, they just heighten parts of your brain. Right. But you can actually access that with breath work, with movement, with flow state, with, you know, mirror neurons, with um, right. uh, just sort of intense, immersive experience. You can right? wake it up in yourself. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So a question. <laughs> so what do you do? with a person that feels really awkward about movement and dance? Like how do you help someone embody? Yeah. The first thing I would do is find some of the dance floor that you, that you won't tell you're doing this, but just copy their dance moves. Oh. It's just really fun. So I just find someone across the room and I just watch them dancing. And I just kind of start kind of just doing their dance moves mm-hmm. and I just find different people on the dance floor. And I start doing their dance moves and from that place, I start getting out of my head into my own body. And before I know mm. it, I'm swept up into flow state. Mm. But that's a really great trick that I've shared to thousands of people and lots of lots and lots of friends. And um, and it works every single time. It's a great so idea. So that's one example. Another one is is just through touch. So not sexual touch, mm-hmm. but just finding someone to just like either just like twirl around or just dance with or just like hold their hand for a second. Just that sense of touch and connection, participation mm. um, makes you feel like you belong, right? That oxytocin release that you feel yes. Yes. Gives, your, gives you the courage and permission mm-hmm. to just sort of like fully move. Mm-hmm. The other that we do with our MCs is we do a lot of sort of opportunities for follow the leader. So just... 
giving the entire dance floor a way to move left and right or twirl around or hug a neighbor. We just give the community something, something an action to do. So that as they're warming up, they're just falling little moments here and there. Yes. And then they're like, all right, now I'm in it. You yes. know, so it, I would say it takes about 45 minutes for a dance floor to warm up. Mm-hmm. I always say it's, you know, like yes, there's, there's a moment of warming up. There's a cold dance floor and then there's a hot dance floor. I mean, the dance floor is cold. You have to be patient with it mm-hmm. and just know that the dance floor is cold for the first, you know, while and just mm-hmm. stick with it. Just let that first 30, 40 minutes be like a, a meditation for mm-hmm. yourself. And then all of a sudden you feel Right, you, you feel mm-hmm. the switch on. Like I don't know if you felt that at Daybreaker. You mm-hmm. just feel this like switch that goes mm-hmm. off, and all of a sudden you're like, "Whoa!" Mm-hmm. Like there's this whoosh, right? That happens. Yes, yes. And then all of a sudden the entire place feels like it's moving in unison. It's flow state. The energy is yes. is sort of aligned. Yes. And everybody, um, everybody seems awake into it. Like people are yes. smiling at each other, and I was just like, "Wow!" Yeah. You know, and, and you, uh, I have to tell you, like, I was so, like, impressed with the exercise that you did at the end of the of the daybreaker. And I ha- you'll, you'll have to laugh because at first I was just like, okay, okay, what is she going to do? You know, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been to these workshops. What are we going to do? You know, and I was swept away. I was pulled into it. You know, and I, I don't know if you want to share a little bit about what that was, but I, I was crying and I was like, I don't want to cry. I don't want to cry. You know, actually, my husband and I were in like a little bit of a tense spot. We had had a fight before we came. And I was like, I don't want to look at him. And, and then all of a sudden it was just like, it just opened up. And I was like, I love him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And did you guys talk about it afterwards? Yes. Yes. What came up? <sighs> Just, you know, like, when was the last time we actually sat there and stared into each other's eyes? And, I mean, maybe it sounds like kind of a funny thing, but, like, literally to stare and sit in sort of silence. And I married this person. I mean, I'm in love with this person. How how have I not, like, I'm, I, I, oh, my gosh, I need to see him. Have I been taking him for granted? Like, look at, look at this, you know, wonderful person. Yes. So what she's talking about is this eye-gazing meditation at the very end. So imagine after a two-hour dance party when everyone's hearts are open, you're sweating, you're ready to receive messages. It's a little trick. Mm. You know, when your endorphins, like all your neurons are firing, your, 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 your amazing, happy neurochemicals are firing. These are the moments when you can actually put messages in. Mm. Right. So it's not the beginning of a, of a, of a movement experience. It's at the end. Mm. Right. So as everyone's like warm and open and invited and dewy and juicy, right. When those moments are there, then you create these, these, these opportunities. So, so I led this eye gazing meditation, um, where I had everyone sit cross-legged and face each other. And then it was just like five, six minute kind of initially uncomfortable moment of gazing into each other's eyes but the technology of the eyes again the gaze the technology of the human gaze is mm-hmm. is truly the most again ancient technology of belonging that exists absolutely but we've forgotten how to see each other absolutely oh i'm so glad you said that because it just put shivers down my spine it's you know, the gaze and looking at each other and you, it wasn't just having partners, but you're like, okay, look at this stranger, like looking at this other person that you're dancing next to. And it is the antithesis. It is to, to shame because shame is downcast glance. When you raise your eyes to look at another person, you can come out of your shame. And maybe that's why you start crying. Like that's someone right. else sees you. It's like, Hey, I, I belong. That's right. I mean, I, yesterday I was on this, I was just listening to this podcast. A couple is a video podcast. Friends of mine just, um, it just popped up on my social and it was husband and wife and they couldn't look at each other. Yeah. It was deeply yeah. awkward to watch because because they were interviewing each other, but whenever they were speaking, they truly couldn't make eye contact once. It was so uncomfortable. And yes. and so the challenge, again, for everyone listening is to find someone, whether it's your husband, your wife, your partner, your child, and ask them to just listen to one song with you, a beautiful song, um, just a, a folk song, not like a dance song, but a, just like a... Um, download Patrick Watson's song to build a home mm. listen to that song Patrick Watson to build a home okay um, it's a five minute song and just sit cross-legged in front of someone in your life whether it's yeah, again a roommate a partner a friend someone you're struggling with a lover anyone uh, even a work colleague and just put that song on and close your eyes um, imagine someone that you love is in front of you that made you feel like you belonged 
And then after a minute of calling that person in, blink your eyes open and open and, and look at the person in front of you and imagine the person that made you feel like you belonged when your eyes were closed is now in front of you. And that exercise alone is going to really put you in a place of deep connection with that person and um, and make sure you're looking your left eye to their left eye. Mm-hmm. So you're not kind of shifting your eyes right left to right. Sometimes we don't know which eye to look at. Just have your left eye look at their left eye so that you're just holding that gaze uh, for those five minutes. And, um, and that will take you to a really, really deep place. So... <sighs> You know, one of our other guests we had on the show um, was Dr. Keltner. Yes. And, and, I, and I know now that you've done this research with him. Yes. And so, again, you know, Radha, you're very fascinating to me because you're like, okay, we're going to do this dance party and then we're going to be doing this research and look at your brain on dance. <laughs> you know, it's hard to uh, prescribe something when it's not measured. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, what is measured can be prescribed, right? So meditation can easily be measured. You know, walks in nature can easily be measured, right? Yoga can easily be measured because these are sort of fixed movements or fixed modalities. Whereas dance is sort of this redheaded stepchild because, you know, it's like everyone moves differently and everyone's experience of dance is totally different. So we need much more sophisticated forms of measurement to be able to really measure dance so that doctors could prescribe it. And particularly collective dance, right? Dancing alone in your living room is one thing, but dancing in a communal experience where you get to see someone else move through their own kind of dances and you get to see, oh, look, they are sort of you know, completely comfortable with their awkward dance moves. Maybe I could be comfortable with my awkward dance moves. I don't be. I don't have to look like a professional dancer to be here. I could be exactly as I am and move exactly the way my body wants to and feel fully received and fully like I belong. And I think so often there's this sort of mm-hmm. sense of like, I can't dance in this world where actually dance is our most healing and most sort of celebratory technology that exists. And everyone can and should dance to unlock a... Um, their bodies unlock celebration and sort of come home to this idea that dance takes you to the most present state of being when you're moving your body to music, which we've been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We are getting out of our heads into our bodies. When we meditate, we often have to actually like actively get out of our heads into our bodies, right? When we're doing so many other these sort of mental health modalities, we have to actually get out of our head into our bodies. Whereas Mm -hmm. dancing, if you allow yourself to be swept up into the collective experience, you you can't help but get out of your head into your bodies, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, And so so there's this opportunity for everyone to come back to the dance. And now we have these sort of facial recognition software capabilities that that Dacker has found at UC Berkeley and Great Red Science Center to be able to measure facial expressions before and after when a dance floor is cold and when a dance floor is hot. So we can see how someone's facial expression goes from sort of serious and solemn and somber and stressed to states of euphoria and awe, right, and wonder. And so we get to now sort of measure that and we get to now apply that so that doctors can begin prescribing not just dance Mm -hmm. but communal dance, which is the most potent. Like think about like going to AA, right? The group therapy is actually far more potent than individual therapy. I completely agree. Group therapy allows you to put yourself in the frame of the dozen and people are in the room so you're able to see a dozen perspectives rather than it's one-on-one which you know I I never fully understood one-on-one therapy I've tried it now for years and years (laughs) and years and it's and it's and it hasn't stuck for me Mm -hmm. and I think it works obviously it works for millions of people and like absolutely amazing but for someone like myself I'm just I I don't know. I don't want to get stuck in my own story. I want to know what your story is and what your yes. your story is. And I want to yes. you know your, so I can gain perspective. Yes. So I can say maybe my story, maybe I'm so deep into my own story. I can't get out of my, I can't get out of my own way. Mm-hmm. Right. And so to be able to share my story, be received and be seen in it, of course, like it's so important to be reflected in your own struggle and your own traumas. Of course you want to be seen in that. Mm-hmm. And also to, to have a perspective of a dozen people in a room to be able to re, to sort of, kind of reflect back to you what's going on. Mm-hmm. I'm in a women's circle and mm-hmm. that has been by far the most women, a potent um, mental health 
support for me yes. because I'm receiving, you know, 10 women's perspective every week, every other week. Yes, no. um, And I'm able to also give feedback in a way that is healing for me as well, because I'm, yes. you know, I'm able to participate, not just, it's not just the, the therapist telling me what to do or, or how to think or, or how to be, but I'm also now participating, as I said mm-hmm. earlier, in their recovery, in their, um, you know, in, in their own therapy, I get to be a therapist for them, mm-hmm. right? So in this action of mm-hmm. giving and receiving, I'm able to also heal my own wounding around those things because in the teaching, we often can heal too. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you on that. It's it's also like when you're in a group um, therapy environment too, you can see your own struggles in another person and then also you feel like, oh, I'm not alone. Yes. Like, oftentimes you might not feel that with the therapist unless to a certain extent they can, they people will may or may not share certain things about their personal experience. But traditionally, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist by profession. We're not supposed to. And, you know, we, we, we do when it makes relevant sense to do so. But, um, you know, I'm also a group therapist and I, I love group. I love it. It's the most alive because you're in a group of people. Your story comes out in the moment. It's like you're yes, living it. And exactly. You, I mean, so I'm, actually, I'm glad that I didn't even know you were a clinical therapist. I'm, I'm sorry to, if I insulted you. No, no, you, you. didn't. Yeah. You didn't. You should hear me. I would talk to my colleagues. I'm like, oh my God, what are we doing with this field? <laughs> this is crazy. You know? And you can't, people can get stuck in the story individually, but the, the idea, right, for an individual therapist to help you find your voice, to empower, to help you be empowered, to empower yourself, find agency, not, you know, I hope no one's telling you exactly what to do, right? Because then it's like, for sure. that not such a great cycle, but in group, it's Isn't it fabulous? I love it. And then you get to sort of facilitate the container and it's so safe to have, right, a an actual therapist in the room and you get to sort of continue kind of just sort of holding the space for that type of healing. Mm-hmm. But to allow, yeah, the collective, what, what has been the difference for you in group therapy and individual therapy? I'm actually curious yeah, to know. No, I just, I feel personally also more alive. I feel like there's a group of people in the room and I'm kind of, I'm always thinking of what are the connections? What, how am I bridging these, all these different folks? And so he's saying that, she's saying that, how do I bring them together? All constantly bring them together because when I bring them together, it, it gets just, it, people, people elevate, they, they heal, even if it's a super sad experience and feeling that you can have a difficult, profound experience that's hard in a group of people is it builds strength. That's right. It's like, you're not alone. You can handle that out in society. You're going to be okay. You know, that's right. You know, you just gave me this idea actually of just couples therapy in group because mm-hmm. it's usually the individual mm-hmm. group therapy is one piece of it. But the idea of having like me and my husband have been looking for, you know, we, we, we've had mm-hmm. multiple couple therapists just for our own kind of relational mm-hmm. hygiene. And I just haven't found a couple therapist that really can understand the dynamics. There's so many different dynamics in our relationship as colleagues and as best friends, as parents, as, you know, sort of all these things, a lot. And so the idea of having a group, um, they do that. They do do that. There's couples there, there, there does exist. It's not a lot. I mean, it's rare, but there are a couple of people that do group couples therapy, but I mean, you could also do it as a, as a group, group, as as a bringing people together in a group and talking. Right. I think this is so exciting. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I, it's really cool to be um, thinking about community. You know, I, I think about community so often is, is like sort of as a, sort of one to many. It's like how as a community mother of Daybreaker can I support the collective? I just keep thinking like Rada, Agrawal, what, you know, what's, what is it that inspires you? What's driving you? You know, how does it... How does it unfold this way? You know, does it come from your intuition? Do you have like a vision and a dream? You know, what inspires you? And I have to throw in my potentially psychotherapeutic questions. You know, I think about your parents being immigrants. I think about you almost being a triplet, really. Um, but, right. you know, a twin and, an, and a, a sister that's close in age. And I just, it's a lot to throw at you. But I'm wondering, how does all of this happen for you? You know, when I think of my contribution in this in this world, 
you know, we all think about that. Like, what are we leaving behind or what are, what is our legacy? You know, for me, first of all, it starts with immigrant parents. Like you just mentioned, uh, my father's from India, my mother's from Japan. They came to America knowing no one, knowing, you know, no English as well. So they had to speak the English was their second language. They built their communities from scratch. They had to turn their backs on their families because they fell in love with each other. And wow. their parents didn't approve and their families didn't approve of their marriage in the 1970s where interracial marriages were frowned upon. Um, so they had to raise us with truly um, no family, right? So they had to build family for themselves. And so my parents were some of the best community builders. They created for themselves. My mother hmm. was my Japanese school teacher. My father was my Hindi school teacher. <laughs> my mother and father started the Gifted Children Summer Camp in our community. They did? Yes, they started. They, they. My dad right. and my mother were my soccer wow. coaches um, for soccer um, in school. When I went growing up for 10 years, my, my parents were the lead and assistant soccer coaches. Um, so they, they yeah. really modeled for us um, um, the importance of community from the start, um, even when we didn't have our own families, but we had such a thriving community um, growing up because my parents really modeled that for us. Even our birthday parties, my parents made up birthday games for us, and and we we created these these this, these birthday parties that were really coveted. I hate to say that, but just like by <laughs> our elementary school kids and and the high school kids, and, and my parents like my dad would make his famous fruit punch, and my mom and dad you know, we invented all these games that we would play as 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 kids and, and they just they just were so deeply committed to community being Indian and Japanese like community is such a deep part of oh, their in societies cultures. in both cultures um, and so I was raised in, in very very much in going to Hindu temple and, and Japanese school and huh. um, I went to wow. I Japanese school every Saturday Hindi school every Sunday so I had seven days of school growing up um, wow. so my parents tricked us into believing every kid had seven days of school <laughs> um, but I was in community every single day like for my whole entire childhood I hear it um, yep. so that was very much a part of, of, of my of my preliminary years. And then I think hmm. feeling the whiplash of um, then going to high school and college, um, leaving what I knew with my parents, and then moving into the 20s by myself, with my twin sister, of course, in New York City, but not having community and having to build it from my own and then falling into these friendships that I, you know, idealistically yes. thought were friends, but they all talked shit about each other and they were all yes. competitive with each other, you know, and um, yes. And then sort of like having these idealistic views, having grown up in such deep community and where everyone supported each other. So having that kind of heartbreak of like, oh, wow, unless I build it for myself, this is what can happen to most people. Um, and I think that's mm. what's happening to most people is that we're falling into these friendships that are not aligned. Or these really just relationship or engagements or how we interact with people. And then, Right. And we don't know how to repair any ruptures. Like we have one fight and it's over. Yeah. You know, we can't, we live in this cancel culture yeah, where we have one, it's this fragility in friendship, like one fight and we can't repair it. And it's like yeah, part of that? any relationship is rupture and repair. You yes, have an exactly. argument and you, and you talk about it and you, you know, you have, um, you have a struggle and you move through it. That's, yes. that's how the friendships deepen and yes. how you, how you feel even more close to someone. That's what you do with your wife and your husband. Been. Yes, you have to fight you know, with you each to, other. You have to do it with your friends too, and and so, yeah, I think that's the biggest piece of um, of it was that it was mm. of, of like why I do what I do is like a I felt it, but I also really believe that we all live in this way of just stumbling into friendships. We are not intentional mm. about our friend groups. And the reason we're dealing with so much violence and, and anger and isolation and anxiety is because we have not been intentional about our friendships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear you. And being more intentional about our friendships really is important. And being, you know, not, not being afraid to, you know, step on the eggshells or crack the egg or whatever in the, in the process of interaction. I mean, I think it's virtual, it's incredibly important. When I feel like I can't talk, because I'm not allowed to, or it's too controversial or whatever, I'm like, I can't, I feel like I can't be real. It, 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 I can feel it physiologically. This does not feel good. I don't want to have to live like this. You know, where, right. where do I have to go? That's right. I, like, I know it feels, like a, it feels like a broken leg, right? Yeah. When you feel the, actually the physical feeling of feeling like you're misunderstood mm -hmm. or like you don't belong 
is as painful as having a broken leg. Yes. Right? It's as yes. harmful yes. to your yes. physical yes. health. Yes. Right? It's as harmful to your physical health as being an alcoholic and twice as harmful as obesity yes. Yes. when you don't belong. Yes. Right? When you when you focus too much on your work and climbing your way to the top, right? And you don't have your community, it's as painful as having a broken leg. And as harmful to your physical health as being an alcoholic and twice as harmful as obesity. Okay. I want to also underscore that again. So you're quoting those statistics. And can you just tell our audience where that is actually coming from that we've done? There are yes. studies that so show So Harvard this. did a 75-year longitudinal study mm-hmm. that they followed 750 you know, people over 75 years with these kind of annual markers um, where they followed them every three to five, ten years. And... Um, well, this is another study, but this study um, shared at, at the at the end of the century of your study, it's still going, but continues to show that the key to a happy, healthy life is meaningful relationships. Right. Right. Key to happy, healthy life is meaningful relationships. It's not money. It's not money. It's not power. It's not fame. It's not getting the, you know, the fancy car, the Rolex watch. Right. Right. It's it's truly meaningful relationships. Yes. Um, another study done by this incredible, actually, artist who interviewed thousands of people on their deathbeds, mm. um, asked them, and she has a recording of all of them, asked them, what do you regret or what do you wish you did more of or what do you, what do you actually consider the, your proudest achievement? And with every single one of them said, I am most proud of the friendships I have in my life. I am the most, I regret working too hard and not being, I did not having enough time for my friends and my family and my children. And so, so much of that regret comes from the lack of investing time, effort and energy in meaningful relationships. Yes, yes. I've, I've seen some of that with the, the deathbed con- um, conversions and regrets. Yeah, it's it's well, it's really really important. I know that Harvard study too, because it's like it's been going. I mean, it's been going on for it's it's an ongoing thing. That's right. And they even like I remember, I remember reading that article um, before I was married, and like reading, it's like oh, happiness doesn't come because you got married, or happiness doesn't come because you know you have to make money. And I was like, I feel so much better. <laughs> I feel so relieved. Exactly. I mean. It- what do they say? They said that like it, you know, anything above seventy five thousand dollars a year doesn't make you happier. Yeah. If you make more than seventy five thousand, doesn't make you an order of magnitude more right. happy. Right. Right. Because more money, more problems, as they yes. say too. Or, yeah. But it's like your happiness is is completely sort of connected to your relationships. Your happiness is connected to your relationships. Yeah. And it's like truly, and we and, know that. Right. We know that intuitively. And yet we still focus on money, power, and fame. Because, because you already know, like the point of what you want in your life isn't about being famous. It's like, I want to feel close to my friends and relate. I want to have good relationships. I would like to facilitate good relationships. And it reminds me of what you said. Um, I forget exactly where I read it, but you, you say that, um, you bring community and creativity as a foundational aspect to everything that you do. It's like a guiding principle and an anchor. That's exactly right. And 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 I, and it's so interesting, you know, it's like I have such a deep wonderful group of friends and and you get to see, you know, sort of like as you move through, as you grow, as you build your service, as you build your the sort of large community movement, who continues to stay with you along the way. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that to me is a real marker of mm-hmm. of someone who is do you know what the word compersion means? I don't. You used it earlier. Yeah, so compersion so compersion means someone who is happy for your success if it's as if it's their own. Oh. Right? So compersion is the opposite of of comparison, of competition. Okay. Compersion is like, wow, Elizabeth, you have a million podcast, you know, listeners. Heck yeah. Like your win is my win. Like yeah. I feel so much joy for you. And mm. the friends that have, have been with me on this journey of like explosive growth who are still like not envious or feel compersion for yes. me. Those are the friends that I'm like, I want to be with you. I want to support you. I want to big up your projects. I want to be in service of, you know, your your biggest dreams. Those are the friends that I, I feel deeply connected with. And there is nothing more valuable in a way than that. Or, you know, like that is it just when you said that, and I know we're sort of just having this, like we're 
engaging hypothetically, but it's like you saying that to me, like I feel it in my entire body. Mm. I feel a sense of warmth. I feel it like it's almost just like, you know, because it's like someone's someone cares and feels connected to it. Yes. To the success of you, your podcast, your message, your vision, your service, right? You want to bring more wonder. You want to bring more connection. You, you know, you're a psychotherapist. You don't need to do this. You're doing this because you really want to spread more awe in a world that's filled with, as you, I'm sure, experience in your day-to-day you know, sort of private um, work, so much sadness and anxiety and depression yes. and loneliness disconnection. and disconnection and lack of awe. So you're like, how can I actually, right, bring more awe and yes. how can I do so? So I, I, so to be seen in that and reflected in that by your friends, by those that, that you love and cherish, to see you and big up you and celebrate you mm-hmm. and feel your success as their own, nothing feels better than that if you actually are someone who is also a community person, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. me, and I, I feel mm-hmm. that in you. And we are all community mm-hmm. people, every single one of us. The idea of being an introvert is actually, if you speak to a psychotherapist, you, we, you are one, actually, we should talk about this. Introversion um, from all the psychotherapists I've talked to, and, and we talked about this t- right now mm-hmm. as well, um, I've learned that it's just essentially childhood wounding and traumas that have not been processed, mm-hmm. that have made you actually self-fulfill this prophecy that you feel feel more energized alone Mm -hmm. because you had a moment in your childhood where your parents fought and you felt more energetic alone in your bedroom where you were sexually traumatized and so you felt more safe alone where you were bullied as a kid so you felt more safe alone where you had a a trauma with a friend where you invited them over and they said no Mm -hmm. and you then felt like oh my gosh I need to wait for the invitations I'm introverted there's so many Mm -hmm. little things in our lives and our childhoods that have happened to us that have pushed us into this sort of label that Carl Jung dangerously put out in the yes. world, which is introversion. It's a dangerous term. Yes. Yes. It is not a helpful term. We yes. are all metaverts. And I put this in yes. my book. A <laughs> metavert metavert, yeah. is we all get to be at a spectrum of I love to be alone with my own company. I love to be with people. Depends on when, depends on why, depends on my cycle, it depends on the moon, it depends on my work. Let's not label ourselves and pigeonhole ourselves into one set of labels that limit our sense of connection to other people. Right. We are everything. We get right. to be it all, not just one thing. And yeah. so do you agree? I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, Carl Jung made it very categorical. And I think even so, like since him, there's been people that have sort of been pushing at that kind of um, uh, perspective. Dangerous labeling. And, and, yeah, the labeling. And then absolutely, too, looking at experiences, I think people, there's much more of a fluidity to extroversion and introversion. And like you said, in certain cer- certain circumstances, yes, um, more extroverted. In certain circumstances, more introverted, want to be alone. I mean, people are a balance of both. Sometimes they might tend to be more of like people-oriented, more charismatic in that way. Sometimes perhaps a little bit more like even arguably like poetic or soft-spoken. But at the same time, we all benefit from the connection with another person or with a group. Absolutely. No one's so introverted that they're going to sit in the room alone forever. By the way, to be introverted and to be alone, the electricity that is in your house to warm you is created by millions of people. Mm. The food that you're eating when you're alone is created by millions of people. The air, you know, it's like every aspect of your life that allows you to be alone is actually supported by millions of people. So we are never alone. Every aspect of our lives is social. Every aspect of our existence needs to be social for our subsistence as a human species. Mm -hmm. So for us to think we are alone is again a dangerous, dangerous way of living. And the labels that we put upon each other are extremely, extremely disconnecting yes. and isolating. Yes, the labels are atrocious in that way. And and I think, you know, it's like that we are never alone. I mean, I am saying this really, and I'm saying it playfully too. It's like, you know, it's a very big spiritual principle. I mean, of course. you know, we are, we are, and, and I think we, you were saying this even earlier too, like, you know, 
we are a part of the earth. We're just another bit of nature exactly. wandering around. Yes. <laughs> you know, we are, we are all interconnected. We cannot survive without each other. If you are sitting alone, you're eating some food that maybe someone else prepared. If you bought it, you know, or you bought it from someone at the store, that it is this continuity of interactions that we are a part of. Exactly. So when you say that, it's a very selfish way of seeing yourself and the world. I really believe that. It's a very dangerous way of existing when you cannot see yourself as part of a bigger world. Mm -hmm. It's when you can only see yourself and that's what social media is doing. Yeah, and that's what every part of advertising is perpetuating. It's what every yes, sort of yes. corporation is pushing us towards. They're marionetting all of us to believe that we are individuals. So we are buying things separately. We're spending more money. We are more isolated. Therefore, we need more you know, lawyers to, to be able better. to. We need right, to buy stuff to feel Every aspect better. of the corporate culture in the world is preying on our loneliness, mm -hmm. truly. And so we've got to just... Stop that. And I really believe this is the year, 2023, mm. where we fully actually ascend to this new way of being, that the true veil is thinning mm. and we are going to come back to our sense of collective consciousness. This I, is the I, year. Yeah, it feels like there is really a movement in that direction. Absolutely. I mean, certainly, obviously, with the work that you're doing, I mean, in the powerful community builder that you are and that you're spreading it. And thank you that you're doing that. The biggest sort of opportunity for us is to learn how to have crucial conversations. Yeah. So my friends and I, we are so versed at it now. We call it, hey, can I have a quick cruise with you? We call it a cruise. <laughs> so like, you know, when you did this, it like really kind of like made me feel contraction here. And I just want to have a quick crucial let you know that like mm -hmm. I had a contraction. So can we just unpack that? Did you mean to say that? Because the story I have in my head is this. Beautiful. You know, that sort of thing, right? And so mm -hmm. that those crucials have allowed for so much more depth in my friendships mm -hmm. Because of it, mm -hmm. so now it's like such a it's become such a part of the everyday language mm -hmm. um, that that uh, it's now fun to be like let's let's just go and have a walk in a cruise, you know, no, coffee in a cruise, you know. When those kinds of things that at first might seem difficult to talk to then become playful, exactly. It's like you did that again, right? Yes. Or oh, great. That. I mean, I had a crucial with my friend like literally a year ago, and it was just the silliest cruise, but we laughed about it. But I just said. I have a story in my head that you like my puppy more than my dog, <laughs> you know, I'm a, you like my puppy more than my daughter. Um, and I, you know, and I just, I just said, you know, whenever you come over, you're always playing with my puppy and not playing with my daughter. And it just makes me feel like you care. And he was just like, oh my God, I had no idea. And he just laughed about it. And I was sort of hormonal and breastfeeding, you know, whatever. And, and we just, and now whenever he comes over, he's like, I'm playing with Soleil first. Mm -hmm. Okay. For 20 minutes. And then I'm going to, if you can, I brought a treat for none. Is that okay? <laughs> anyway, but like just, it, it's become so part of our thing that any little contraction like that, as silly as it, as, as it is, before anything builds up, mm -hmm. it's like you just have that quick cruise, it diffuses immediately, and then you're off to the races. It's like the most spiritual thing we can do is to have difficult conversations with each other and repair them so you're not walking around with all these bullseye kind of like mini minds on your body, right? I know. I have a good um, phrase for you that um, my friend John Verveke said, we communicate in order to commune. Isn't yes. that good? Yes. We communicate in order to better commune. That's yeah. beautiful. It's good. It's yes. Good. You know. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. And we really appreciate it. I mean, I know that the, the audience is going to have so, so much to experience from this and from what you've said. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here and to, um, yeah, to just learn together. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. That was Radha Agrawal. Thank you so much, Radha. To learn more about Radha's work, check out www.radhaagrawal.com and www.daybreaker.com. Please come back next time on Wonderstruck for our season finale. I'll be talking with Dr. John Duyard about Ayurvedic medicine, healing, better breathing, and the relationship between wonder, aging, and the natural world. For more information about Wonderstruck, our guests, and some really exciting upcoming events, check out wonderstruck.org. And please follow the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and subscribe on YouTube. We truly want to hear from you with your feedback, reviews, and ratings. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at WonderstruckPod. 
Wonderstruck is produced by Wonderstruck Productions along with the teams at Bailey Newman and Freetime Media. Special thanks to Brian O'Kelly, Ileana Eleftheru, and Travis Reese. Thank you for listening. And remember, be open to the wonder in your own life. Thank you.